Welcome to a new edition of the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino. On this episode, we talk with author and podcast host Sandy Rosenthal. She founded the nonprofit Levies.org in 2005. The group's focus is educating the public that the flooding of New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina was due to federal engineering mistakes, not the wrath of nature. Her 2020 book, Words Whisper in Water, is about how, against all odds, she altered the national narrative about the flooding disaster. In March of 2019, Rosenthal unveiled the flooded museum museum at a major breach site. She initiated the installation of three historic plaques vetted by the state's preservation office. She's got a great story. Enjoy this interview. Great to meet you. Thank you for taking a minute out today. You're very welcome. I'm, I'm delighted. So let's start everything off here with living through COVID. We all survived the last three years. We're all here standing. How did you get through it? How has it changed the way that you do things now? Wow. Um, so I did things I've never done before. I became the neighborhood grocer. We, we were ordering in order to keep the uh, wholesalers in business. We were ordering food from wholesalers and then receiving it and then div- divvying it up and then delivering it, delivering it to our neighbors. So we became a grocers, something I never thought I would do. Yeah. I also did zooms, uh, over uh, online to all of my friends. Uh, I taught them yoga. Nice. And I, and also with all my family, every single night we would share what we had cooked for dinner because we couldn't go out to restaurants. And we're still doing it today. Nice. Even though we, we can go back to restaurants, we share food, what we cook every single night. So I've, I'm actually closer to my family. That's wonderful. So let's get to the essence of exactly what you do for a living. I'm going to put you in front of a bunch of third graders at a career day. One of the okay. kids looks up and says, hey, what do you do for a living? How do you answer that child? Well, what I do is when I see something really, really important, I mobilize and gather all of my friends and my neighbors and my family. And I say, we all have to get together and we have to do something to make things better. Wonderful. So when you were in that age range, 10 to 12, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to live a very different life from, from growing up as a child. I grew up uh, very poor. And I didn't like it. And I was going to make sure that that didn't happen to me. And so what I did is I studied really hard in school, got into a good college and did the things I thought I, that I thought would would get me there. And it, it did seem to help. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, even as an author um, and, and someone that gets people together to help others. What were these seeds that were planted in you early on? Did you grow up in New Orleans? And what was your childhood like that gave you those seeds to grow into you today? I actually grew up in New England. Okay. Where I wish I was living right now because it's so hot here right now. But I grew up uh, near Boston, Massachusetts. I know how to park a car in the yard. Uh, uh, I can turn that accent on still. Um, growing up, the seeds that turned me into a, a mobilizer, I mobilized people. Um, you know, I, I think it was little bits here and there. Uh, I, I don't think when the levees broke uh, during Hurricane Katrina, I turned into a completely different person, the mobilizer that I am now. I don't think anything, one thing prepared me. I think it was lots and lots and lots of little things, including handicaps and, and, and problems that I had. Even those things helped. So who's been kind of a hero for you in your life? Oh, my hero um, recently passed away. She is only four foot ten. And she was a civic mobilizer. And I asked her, uh, before she passed away, um, how many times she had been arrested 
for her civic mobilization and showing up in protests. And she answered, not enough. <laughs> and I thought to myself, wow, I am unworthy because I've never been arrested for showing up in protest. And I feel like, uh, like, um, I need to get arrested once if I, <laughs> I want to call myself a, a true mobilizer. Well, you still got time. <laughs> I do. <laughs> so it's interesting. I, I was four foot 11 when I was in high school. And it's an interesting way how things manifest. And I've thought about it often with doing the podcasting and just in general with broadcasting. I think that's one of the reasons why maybe I got into it because I had, since I was small, I had to make sure that my voice could somehow be heard. You know, I've, I've tried to figure that, that one out. And it sounds like with her, part of her life was mobilizing and, you know, because maybe her size, she had a mighty voice and wanted to get out there and do it. And she, and she was tiny, not just short, but tiny. Mm-hmm. Right, right, I think right. you're right. I'd yeah. love to ask her. I wish she was here now. I would ask her. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Anyone that's alive on the planet right now, who would you love to meet? Who would you love to meet and talk to? Barack Obama. Yeah. I, and I, I read just a few minutes ago that um, a, a January 6th rioter um, was caught n- near Obama's home. Uh, looking like he was up to no good. And that's probably why uh, President Obama sprung to mind. But I do have a photograph of him and me here in my living room. You know why he did that? You know why that guy did that, right? No, I didn't get a chance to read the full story. I only caught the headline. Trump put his address up there on Truth Social. Huh. So this guy started spreading it to everybody else. He wanted to have a lot of people mobilize around his house. Well, I think you've just I think I've just answered the question on who I don't want to meet. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I mean, you, you talk about absolute irresponsibility as if we needed any more proof. <laughs> anyway, so um, let's move on into some of the motivators for you. Every day you wake up, you have, you know, you're a host, you're a writer, you're a mobilizer. What is the fuel for you? What is it that makes you be who you are every day? I think. I wake up every day wanting to work even further on making sure that everybody, not just in America, but the whole world knows the real reason that 1,400 people died within a few hours on August 29, 2005. And the reason that 100,000 families had to leave their homes and many of them could never come back. Everyone needs to know the real reason that that happened. And a lot of people still believe in the fairy tale. The fairy tale that the, that the culprits want you to believe. The, the, the people responsible with the federal government, the Army Corps of Engineers. But the fairy tale is, oh, Hurricane Katrina was a monster storm and New Orleans is all below sea level and you know they're all corrupt down there. That's a fairy tale. I wake up every day working and I'm actually number one focus in my mind right now, the 20th anniversary, which is two years from now. Wow. It's crazy mm-hmm. to think it's that far away. I, uh, my son's 18 and I remember it was around that time, right before that, that he was born. And wow, it's a long time ago. Um, yeah, so many misperceptions. It's, it's amazing how many stories break and get in the media that we are totally misguided on, whether we only get 5% of the hundred or we're led to believe something. And then finally they come out. Like how many years did the government sanctioned cigarette ads and all these things said oh it's healthy it's great for you it's wonderful smoke up and it's like it was just a row it's like eventually the truth comes out one way or another it comes out 
one of the things I've learned since the levees broke during Katrina is beware of what you read in the media in the in the first hours. And even the not only that, not just the first hours and days, but the first months and years. Beware what you read because the media sticks to that original narrative for whatever reason. I mean, books have been written on the subject. But they do. If it bleeds, it leads. That's really what it comes down to. I mean, there's always some kind of angle. Um, I know early in my journalistic career, that was kind of a thing that was really big for people that got into journalism to do it. And I've just never been into it. I've never been that type that's looked for it. It makes people nervous. It spreads disinformation. It's just a bad thing. Karmically, it's bad. I remember the best advice I ever got before my son was born. Um, at the job that I was at, I was working at a home health agency. Someone pulled me aside and said, whatever you do, be honest all the time. And I think that's been an adage I've remembered my entire life, especially in journalistic ventures. It's I so- think that's fabulous advice, especially since with media, it's that credibility uh, that that once the me- once a, me- a medium, whoever it is, has lost their credibility, it's over. Yeah. I don't know if you remember on NPR, there was a reporter, Carl Castle. He was he was on Morning Edition. He was one of the main guys. He had a perfect gravelly broadcast voice. And I remember the morning he was going to retire and he was there for like 40 years. Someone said to him, what is the most important thing that you learned over your journalistic career that you stuck to? And he said, I never once in my career, ever reported anything if it wasn't corroborated by at least two sources. You know? Brilliant. There's something to be said about credibility. Absolutely. And, you know, um, getting two corroborations, there are times, like during a disaster, when that's very, very difficult, but that's when it's even more important. Yeah. During a disaster. uh, Or or in the case of us here in New Orleans, a a catastrophe. It rises above the level of disaster. Well, one of the things that's emblematic of New Orleans is that jazz culture. And one of the things that I do is I have a radio show called Neon Jazz. And when I began it back in 2011, my aim was to get all of the things that were a part of jazz from the musician, not from a book, not from a magazine, from the mouth of the musician, because it's their story and there's no refuting or getting around what the truth is because they're, they're the one telling it. I think that's one of the big things that people need to adhere to when, when they're spreading information, especially with this whole like podcasting world that's opened up, you know, it's just, it, it, I think that's one of the things that's positive about the podcasting world is that finally truth is getting put out there. Like what you're talking about with Katrina, this is a platform for those of us out there that want to put out the real information to be able to do it. Absolutely. The, the, I'm so fortunate to be living in this city where the culture of jazz is, is everywhere. It's all around me. I can walk a block and be lucky enough to see, to see so close I can touch him and hear, uh, Kermit, Kermit Williams, uh, performing, Kermit Ruffins performing, um, the trumpet, like, yeah. right here. Uh-huh. And, and it's so, and the pro, the only problem with, um, having a rich culture of jazz right here at my fingertips is you can take it for granted. You can, yeah. it, 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 all, all, all I have to do is just get up and walk out the door and there it is. 
So, so, however, I've learned to get past that and to not take it for granted and to fully appreciate and enjoy it pretty much every chance I can. So in this journey in life that you've been on, if you have a dream tonight, you were to run into the 20-year-old version of yourself and you could give that younger version of you a piece of advice based on the wisdom you've gained in your life, what would you tell that young version of you? I would always embrace uh, an opportunity with someone genuine to learn from that person, uh, even if it's somebody who um, just has a knows a language that you don't know, but you can learn from that person just by speaking the language a little bit better. And I, I wish I'd have done that more. And I know I still can. Uh, I'm just reaching a point where I have the new responsibilities like grandchildren and, and that, that are kind of taking over. And, but you know, you're right. I still can't, but always look for an opportunity to learn something new. It, it just makes you a more interesting and makes life more fun. Absolutely. So as a writer, what was the first book you read when you were younger that either made you want to write or made you want to read more? I was, have always been an animal lover. And as a really young girl, I like to read books about animals. And so, and then sure enough, I'm an animal lover. I mean, I just had to move my doggy bed out of the way of the camera a moment ago. I have two dogs that I adore that are my life. Um, but I also was very interested in psychology, which I read for fun. I read books like the, the, the Bell Jar and, um, I never promised you a rose garden. I read books like that for fun. I just thought it was really, really interesting. And now I even read books about cr- criminals, uh, path- um, uh, path- uh, people with pathologies that are act crazy and the crimes that they do because I find it interesting. Okay. Yeah. Even though they're awful people, uh, the things that they do are awful. It probably I worded that badly. Um, but I, I just find that really interesting. So these, those things shaped Mom, what I like to read. However, I will say this, having written a book, um, I learned I'm not a writer. Right. For me, writing a book was really, really difficult. Really one, one of the hardest things I've ever done. And I, I like to think of myself, um, tongue in cheek as a one book wonder because I don't think, see myself writing another book. I'll be writing articles and opinion pieces. Um, but I don't think another book is, is in my horizon. That could change. I mean, if, if a, a publisher called me this afternoon and offered me a big chunk of money to write a book, I think I would say yes. <laughs> What's been the best fan letter you've gotten from your book? The best fan letter. Oh my gosh. I, I, that I can answer in a, in a heartbeat. Uh, one of the readers of my book wrote to me and unsolicited told me that reading my book was like reading a not, Reading my book was like reading a Grisham novel on the beach of Pensacola in the summer. Nice. So what, what he's saying is if my book was a page turner. Yeah. And I really, really like the sound of that because I, my book is about a very, very technical subject. It's about engineering failure, you know, inside the levees, why they broke and who's responsible. A really, really technical subject, which is one of the reasons the Army Corps of Engineers almost got away with, uh, uh, with blaming it on other things besides itself because it's technical. So I managed to take a technical subject and turn it into a page turner. Sure. Now that to me was my, my favorite fan letter. That's magnanimous. So of all the things that you've accomplished in your life and done, what are you the proudest of? That I published a book. Let me show you. I, this is a Zoom. This is a card that my children wrote for me and they all signed it. Uh, my three children wrote 
And you did it, meaning I actually got a book published. And I, I got to tell you, not only did I get a book published, but I managed to do it in an environment where there was Katrina fatigue. I, I, I knocked on the door of dozens and dozens and dozens of publishers, and they all said the same thing. Nobody wants to publish another, quote unquote, Katrina book. And even if I said my book's not about Katrina, it's about levy failures and why they broke, they went, we understand we're still not interested. So the fact that I got a publisher, I think it was harder than writing a book. Yeah, absolutely. But I got a publisher, as my mother-in-law once said, I only needed one. Yeah, that's it. So as somebody that lives in New New Orleans and clearly loves it, what do you love the best about that city? Oh, now that's a very different question. Um, again, I, I, t- I touched on it already, but in this city, I can hear splendid world-class jazz everywhere I, everywhere I look. Like, for example, during COVID, we had porch concerts. Yeah. And all I would have to do is open my door and I could hear a concert. And I would, I could walk to the concert and these were public. So you could go to, uh, you could join a, a, a porch concert of someone you don't even know. And it was absolutely okay. And I was able to hear world class jazz. So I am so fortunate to be able to live in a city like this. And I also, anyone who's listening to this, please come visit New Orleans and come listen to our jazz. I need to. Yeah. That was why I wanted to go down there. So all I need to get down there myself. Um, so everyone out there has perceptions of you your family your friends your readers clients colleagues but you run the show what's your perception of you who do you think you are i'm very very um dogged i i persevere uh, one of the things my husband discovered about me that even he didn't know since the levees broke during hurricane katrina is that i never ever give up and my husband likes to joke He's, he's like, this is a joke. He says, Lord, help me. Should I ever leave you for another woman? <laughs> <laughs> Which isn't going to happen, but it's a joke he's making. But he found out that I really, I'm really, really persevere. I really, really don't ever give up. And I really didn't know this about myself. And so even though I lead a very large organization, uh, an investigative team, and I can still continue to this day to mobilize, um, I've seen other things that, that are wrong and need to be righted. Uh, and I've actually jumped on the bandwagon in those cases. But what I do is I lead people by, by showing them how they can make a difference. That's how I lead. So, you know, the one thing about life is, is that we, we have these causes that we fight for and that we want to get rectified. What is your dream response that you would love to get from your book? A dream response I would like to get from my book. I I've, I've got the answer. I would I would I feel that I would have fully and totally succeeded if my book were made into a motion picture movie. Okay. Because there's a lot of people in this world that just don't or can't read a book. And and not everybody takes information well through the written word. So the my book being translated into a movie uh, would be a different way for it to be received. It all, I, there's already an audio book, and I'm grateful for that. But I think a movie would be the, the next step, and I think that would be a wonderful um, way to go. And it's, it, it's very, very possible that we haven't even reached the 20th anniversary yet. Yeah. So I don't even know who I want to play me. What, who? Helen Mirren. Oh, yeah, I can see that, 100%. Mm-hmm. 
hundred percent. So if anyone wants to pick up the book, listen to your podcast, learn anything more about you, where can they go? Uh, the easiest thing is just to go to my website because all of those things are available in one place. And it's my name, sandyrosenthal.net. Wonderful. Sandy, this has been great. It took a long time for us to get together, but we finally did it. Send my love to New Orleans. I hope to get down there at some point and best of luck with everything. Thanks so much. I'd love to see you again soon. Thanks for tuning in to another famous interview with Joe Domino, where we cover the world of art, literature, business, spirituality, music, and more from around the globe. If you want to hear more interviews, visit Famous Interviews with Joe Domino, the channel on YouTube. You can also find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. Thank you.